Military murder is an independent project and is not endorsed by the Department of Defense or any military component. The views expressed are those of the host. The content of this podcast is not meant to be legal or medical advice. Warning, this episode contains graphic details of murder and is not suitable for young listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back, True Crime Army. I am your host, Margot. And for those of you joining me for the first time, Military Murder is a podcast covering true crimes with a military nexus. So maybe it's a military suspect, a veteran suspected of murder, or a military spouse who snaps. If there's a murder and a military connection, I'll cover it on this podcast. And you don't have to know anything about the military to enjoy listening, I promise. You just have to be a true crime enthusiast. And if that's you, welcome home. What an amazing week it has been, listeners. For my fans who have been here for a while, wow, the podcast is getting a lot of traction because you are all sharing it with your friends and family. And that is amazing. Keep doing it. Let's grow this army bigger and bigger and bigger. And let's keep telling these crazy stories. There are people listening in over 100 countries. Isn't that amazing? I just can't believe that in 100 countries, We are getting together at the same time, around the same day to kind of listen to the same stories. And it's amazing that I have been able to unite 100 countries, regardless of our differences, to kind of just listen to these true crime stories. And for that, I am just so thankful for each and every one of you who is listening right now. And for those of you who are not already following the show on social, I encourage everyone to follow on Instagram at Military Murder Podcast. That's where I interact the most with my listeners because I personally find that it's an easy platform to interact with. I'm also on Facebook at Military True Crime and I'm on Twitter at Military Murder. So my preference is Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. So to be honest, I think that the most honest discussions happen on my Facebook page. So if you haven't liked the page, and you aren't following yet, go do that now. And while you're there, leave a review. So many amazing listeners have already done that and I truly appreciate it. So one more thing I wanna make sure you all know about is my website and my blog post. For each episode that I release, I make a corresponding blog post where I post pictures of the people in the case and I post the links to my sources. So that way, if after the show, you wanna keep digging, you wanna see what these people look like, you can go there and see that. And so this just reminds me, um, my Facebook followers already know this, But two things, uh, or two or kind of three things about the Clint Loran story. First, as I was about to post my blog post last week, I just wanted to do a quick search on the freeclintlorance.com website. And to my surprise, it was gone, of course, because it was run by his family, but he's out now. And there were so many documents on there, but I actually downloaded some documents that I found important and that I used for my story So if you're interested, I I put those on my blog post and those are Clint Lawrence's handwritten letter to President Obama and then Clint's attorney's four page letter to the convening authority talking about the biometrics. And this is a 2014 memo. And I'll put a link in the show notes to make it easy for everyone to find. Finally, one of the guys who was part of the Clint Lawrence ordeal, like boots on the ground, Todd Fitzgerald, he spoke out on the Stars documentary and many other places. He actually reached out on my Facebook page And there is a lively discussion on more things about the actual case. So, for example, the direction of the motorcycle with respect to the patrol and also some more information about the guys who were actually on the motorcycle. It's a fascinating conversation. So I I recommend that everyone go there to check it out. Okay, I am starting a new segment called Mama Margot's Mishaps, my 3M moment. 
and there's two things that I need to fix today. They both revolve around rank. So the first thing is in episode six, the episode about when is murder self-defense, I mispronounced the Navy husband's rank. I said boatswain mate. Well, that's like 5,000% the wrong pronunciation. It's actually bosun, bosun mate. What? I would have never known. So my bad to the Navy. And the second thing is in my last episode, part two of the Clint Lorraine story, I actually demoted Todd Fitzgerald by accident. I called him a private first class when in fact he was a specialist. So I just want to apologize to Todd. So already, let's get on to today's case. Okay. So for whatever reason, death penalty cases keep falling in my lap. Episode two, Timothy Hennis, death penalty case. Episode eight, Marines killing Marines, death penalty case. Episode nine, a father's revenge, death penalty case. And today's case will have everyone on both sides of the death penalty spectrum wondering if the end result in this case was correct. This case made its way up to the highest court of our nation and ultimately landed on the lap of the most powerful man in the United States at the time. And well, this case is a doozy. I wonder if any of my military or non-military listeners would be able to tell me the names of the four people currently condemned to die by military courts. To be honest, before I started research for this podcast, I had no clue. But don't worry, we'll get to those cases soon, I promise. Today, I discuss a man who walked among the military death row population until recently. I want to talk about a private first class who terrorized Killeen and Fort Hood, Texas in December of 1988 during a 48-hour period. He was a soldier with mounting disciplinary issues at his unit and his command was seeking to separate him from the military. But before that could happen, he got the taste of blood and became a ruthless killer who would stop at nothing until caught. Join me today as I discuss the Army case against Private First Class Dwight Jeffrey Loving, a man given mercy, although he showed none to his victims. Now, let's dig in. My sources for this case were a doozy. (laughs) They were the opinions of various courts, including the Army Court of Review, the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces, and the United States Supreme Court. I also relied on Dwight's request for commutation to the president, the Cornell Law School write-up of President Obama's 2017 commutations, a UPI article from the 80s, and the government's opposition brief to the United States Supreme Court. Dwight J. Loving was a New York boy born in 1968 to Lucille Williams and Joe Loving Sr., He grew up in a poor neighborhood in Rochester, New York, the youngest of eight kids. According to court records, Dwight's father was an alcoholic. He had an extensive police record, including 23 arrests from 1959 to 1988 for all different type of offenses, including vagrancy, DUI, possession of a firearm and domestic violence. Joe's beatings on his wife were so bad that at one point she actually says she thought she was going to die. And Lucille was so fed up with the beatings that she began to fight back, including stabbing Joe on two occasions. And she even threw hot grease at him. Poor Dwight, the subject in our case today, witnessed the hot grease assault. And as you can imagine, Joe was not only abusive towards Lucille, he didn't hold back on his children. He beat his kids so hard with a leather belt that their skin would break and bleed from the beatings. Not that it matters if you treat your family like trash, but Joe didn't even know his kids' birthdays or their ages. 
At some point when Dwight was young, Dwight's father left the home completely, leaving Lucille as a single mother to eight kids. Dwight's mother worked nights to make ends meet, but ultimately she had to stop working because she got sick. And then she turned to welfare. And then she allowed another alcoholic male figure to enter the home. But the kids' beatings didn't end when Joe left the house. They continued, but this time at the hands of Lucille and the eldest daughter. So it's no shocker that the Department of Social Services visited the loving home on various occasions between 1967 before Dwight was even born through 1985 when Dwight, the youngest kid, was already 17 years old. Dwight was mostly a child of the streets and he had his run-ins with gangs in his neighborhood. When Dwight was eight, he was attacked for the first time. And since then, he had been hit on the head with a bat, beer bottles, bricks, and he had even been shot at. According to Dwight's own brothers, Dwight feeds off a of survival because of where he grew up. Dwight participated in boxing from the ages of 10 to 15 years old, but then he turned to the streets anyway. According to Dwight's boxing coach, Lord Johnson, what a name, right? Dwight was one of the strongest boxers in New York State, but he quit because of girls. Sadly, Dwight was addicted to alcohol and marijuana from a young age because his dad and siblings had basically introduced him to that life. And by the age of 16, Dwight was already an alcoholic. It's not surprising to find out that due to what I just talked about, Dwight didn't perform well in school. He skipped school every chance that he got and he had tons of discipline issues. In sum, as stated by the court, Dwight grew up in an economically depressed, violent, drug-infested neighborhood with substandard schools. Dwight retorted by acting out by committing violent acts at a young age. He would go on to one day be described as having, quote, classic sociopathic personality, end quote. But despite his history, Dwight somehow was still able to join the army. And it's possible that the army didn't even know about Dwight's history or if anything was even documented because he grew up so poor, but he did, he joined the army. Like most soldiers upon entering the service, he was only a teenager. In 1987, he arrived at his first duty station, Fort Hood, Texas, and he was an artillery gunner. For anyone from the Northeast, you know that Texas is a long way from New York, not just in distance, but also in how it differs in its atmosphere. And for those of you unfamiliar with Fort Hood, it is an almost 215,000 acre installation. It's located in Killeen, Texas, and the base and the attached town are about an hour south of Waco and two hours north of San Antonio for anyone who's wondering. According to the base's website, Fort Hood is the Army's premier installation to train and deploy heavy forces and is the only post in the United States capable of stationing and training two armored divisions. When Dwight first got to Fort Hood, according to his first line supervisor, Sergeant Key, Dwight got into a fight and the command was like, oh, they were already getting kind of sketchy. Like, oh, okay, this guy just got here. He's already getting into fights. And they were actually thinking about discharging him from the military. But his supervisor, Sergeant Key, decided, hey, I'm going to give this guy another chance. I'm going to take him under my wing and see if he can thrive. Sure enough, he did. And Dwight did awesome until... He met a girl. Her name was Nadia and she was an Italian immigrant. And when he met her, she was still married and she was an admitted drug abuser. But Dwight just couldn't help himself. He was smitten. I mean, this guy was like the type of guy that just gets stupid over girls. Like he meets a girl who kind of likes him and he'll do anything for that person. That's how they describe Dwight. 
So as soon as he meets this girl, he starts showing up to work late. And then the paperwork just starts piling up, piling up. And he's getting Article 15 after Article 15. And for those of you who don't know, an Article 15 is just administrative paperwork. It's harsher than just regular paperwork, right? Paperwork, they just put in your file. And if you get too many, then they'll kick you out, they'll fire you or whatever in civilian sector. In the military, Article 15 is paperwork, but it's like a little bit more elevated because in an Article 15, your commander can take away rank, which means money, or they can take away money, which means they take away money and they can even restrict you to base. And so for all of these reasons, it's a rehabilitative tool to show that they're putting their foot down and for you to get your act together. But if you get too many of those and you're more likely they're not going to get kicked out of the military. So on top of Dwight's lack of performance, he was spending money like it was nothing, including pawning personal equipment for more money. And by December of 1988, the command at this point, with all the Article 15s that he was getting and he was skipping work and he was getting he was having all these issues, they were already like, all right, let's get the paperwork started to separate Dwight from the military ASAP. But it wouldn't be fast enough. In December of 1988, Dwight lived in the barracks on Fort Hood. So he was living on base. And I imagine that for Dwight, going from a rough neighborhood in New York where he had to fight his way to survival on a daily basis and then being transported to army boot camp where he likely had instructors up his rear every second, right? To then going to his first duty station in the South, this was probably really shocking for a young black man in the late 80s. And according to Dwight himself, arriving at Fort Hood was a rocky time for him. It's unclear to me if Dwight felt unsafe or he had already had these like evil intentions, but in early December, he asked another soldier to get him a gun. Hi everyone. For anyone who follows me on Instagram, I recently posted a picture of me with my kiddos at Disney in front of the Disney castle. But I posted it because my shoulders were looking on fire, defined, toned, and overall just pleasant to look at. So many of you asked me in my DMs for my secret. And of course, my secret is 4 a.m. workouts. But I get the oomph to wake up at 4 a.m. and work out from my pre-workout drink called Energy Explosion. My pre-workout powder was created by world-renowned fitness guru Natalia Melofit. I have been following Natalia for many years now. And in fact, after my second C-section, I hired her as my fitness trainer. And she also helped me postpartum with my third C-section as well. So when she came out with a pre-workout supplement that didn't cause any of the jitters and the crashing, I knew I needed to try it. Energy Explosion helps with energy and it keeps me going all through the morning hours. Because I take it first thing in the morning, which is when I choose to work out, I no longer require that morning cup of joe. This pre-workout has nootropic ingredients, which significantly help me personally with mental clarity and focus. Which listen, when you're juggling what feels like hundreds of tasks a day, it truly does help. And guess what? My listeners are getting 15% off your order. What? Yes, please. If you're ready to get the pump without the jitters, visit mbodysup.com and enter my code MAMAMARGO at checkout for 15% off your order. That's M as in Mike, body, sup as in Sierra, uniform, papa, papa, dot com. Add energy explosion to your car and use my code MAMAMARGO, that's M-A-M-A-M-A-R-G-O-T for 15% off. Enjoy. And when you use it, please DM me so we can talk about your workouts. The soldier got his hands on an illegal gun and gave it to Dwight. It was a 22 pistol. 
And once Dwight got his hands on this gun, and so for anyone who's a gun owner, you know, you get your gun and then you take it out to the range and you want to clean it and you want to like get this nice case for it. So anyway, so Dwight gets this gun. He actually says that when he got it, quote, I was big and nobody messed with me no more, end quote. So I guess according to Dwight, he felt like a gun could really protect him from others who were messing with him, even though it's unclear who exactly was messing with him. But in addition to being new on base and maybe getting messed with, Dwight had that young girlfriend that I was talking to you about, Nadia. It was the beginning of the holiday season in 1988 and the stress of the holidays were getting to Dwight and he was fearing that Nadia was going to break up with him. So Dwight knew exactly the trick. Gifts. I mean, women love gifts, right? So Dwight's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to get some gifts. But wait, he had no money for gifts. But he did have that new illegal gun and he knew exactly where he would have access to easy money. Yep, convenience stores. My personal favorite convenience stores are 7-Eleven and Wawa's. Who doesn't love a good Slurpee? It reminds me, it reminds me personally of my childhood. But anyway, have you ever walked into a convenience store late at night and thought, dang, that store clerk is brave being here alone that late at night. I mean, I'm not a criminal and I'm only here to get my Slurpee, but there's wicked people out there and this person really shouldn't be alone. Well, I doubt that the 7-Eleven convenience store clerk working in Killeen, Texas on December 11th thought he was going to have a brush with death. But that's exactly what happened. When Dwight walked in with his handgun drawn, demanding money, it appeared the clerk was not easily frightened by Dwight and his gun, so Dwight fired two shots, one towards the counter and one towards a soda machine behind the cashier, probably to show the clerk like, dude, I'm not playing no funny business, okay? And the clerk finally obliged. And when Dwight got the money, Dwight ran off. Then Dwight counted his money. 20, 30, 35, 36, 37, 38 dollars. This is equivalent to 82 or 83 dollars today. And Dwight wasn't satisfied with this measly amount. Nadia surely needed a more expensive gift. So Dwight didn't even wait until the police were done investigating the first robbery when within an hour he entered yet another 7-Eleven in Killeen, produced his gun and demanded money. This time he encountered a female clerk and she attempted to grant his demands like, okay, I'll do whatever you want. But when she opened the cash register and it made those funny noises that cash registers do, he got spooked and shot the cash register machine. And he kept yelling, give me the money, give me the money, put it in the bag. And she did so as quickly as possible. And as Dwight was running out the front door, he turned around and shot once. Thankfully, he didn't hit the clerk. Dwight then counted his money. 20, 40, 50, 51, 52. 52 dollars. This was equivalent to $113 today. So now he had $90 total, which is close to $200 in 2020. But this still wasn't enough. There had to be a better way to get wads of money that didn't include robbing a bank. But what? Dwight decided to end his felonious run on December 11th, but he would soon begin another reign of terror. But this time, his thirst was for blood. But he quit on the 7-Elevens. This time, he turned to taxicab drivers. They were sure to have wads of money on their person. On the evening of December 12th, which was the next day, Dwight was at a grocery store in Killeen when he called for a taxicab to take him to Fort Hood. 
His taxi cab driver arrived and it was a 21-year-old army private Christopher Fay who was full of life and he was moonlighting as a taxi cab driver to make ends meet. And he was trying to make ends meet because, because he was far away from his wife and his nine-month-old son who were in Michigan. And Faye was so thrilled about his young family that he even told Dwight on, on the, you know, the cab drive, he said, I'm so excited because tomorrow I'm going to Michigan and I get to see my son. And so Faye drove Dwight to Fort Hood. And after arriving, Dwight says, hey, I need you to go kind of, he kind of points him into like this dark secluded area. So Faye was like, okay, cool. Really not thinking anything of it. I mean, he was on a military installation. I assumed that he felt safe. However, as soon as he did this and he kind of went off into this dark secluded area, Faye felt the barrel of a gun on the back of his head. And I imagine that Faye froze in disbelief. This couldn't be happening. So he's probably thinking, just obey the guy's demands and everything will be okay. He probably thought to himself, you know, and Dwight starts demanding money. Give me all your money. And Faye gave him what he had, but he didn't have much as he had just surrendered all of his money. Dwight was disgusted and displeased and yelled, bull and without mercy pulled the trigger while holding the gun to Faye's head. While looking at the hole he had just created in another human being's head, with blood gushing out, he took aim and shot Faye in the back of the head one more time. There was no denying it. Faye was dead. But Dwight wasn't done yet. Dwight quickly got out of the cab and ran to his barracks nearby where he counted the money. The court records don't reveal the amount that he got from Faye, but again, Dwight wasn't happy. He needed more. So immediately and without a second thought, he called another taxi to pick him up at the barracks on Fort Hood. His taxi cab arrived driven by retired Master Sergeant Bobby Charbino. Dwight asked to be taken to Colleen, and once there, he asked the driver again to drop him off in a dark, secluded area. Again, I imagine that Master Sergeant Charbino didn't think anything of it. In fact, he had just picked up this young fellow on a military base, so, I mean, how much danger could he possibly be in? Once Charbino pulled to the side of the road, Dwight revealed his pistol, asked the driver to turn off the car lights and the engine, and hand over all of the money. The driver complied. Here's all the money from the cabinet pouch and here's my personal money in my wallet. Okay, the cab driver was probably thinking this would all be over soon. And it would be, but not in favor of life. Because then Dwight ordered him to lay down on the seat and Dwight executed Charbino in cold blood. But Dwight didn't have time to think about the two executions he had just committed. No time at all. In fact, he had to make his way to meet up with Nadia because that night, he would take his lady to a nightclub in Killeen. Meanwhile, he's at this nightclub with his girl and none of the patrons know that they're standing next to a cold-blooded killer. As described in the appellate courts, at around one in the morning, Dwight and Nadia piled out of the nightclub and they got into a taxi cab who dropped them off near Nadia's house. But at that point... Dwight realized he really needed to buy some toilet paper. So he instructed Nadia like, hey, hey, girl, go inside. I got to go get some toilet paper. I'm going to take this cab and I'm going to be right back. OK, so once Nadia was out of the car, Dwight brandished his gun and instructed the cab driver to drive to, you guessed it, a dark secluded area. And the driver complied. Now, turn off your lights and turn off the engine. The driver complied. 
Dwight then put the gun to the back of the driver's head and demanded the money. Give me all your money, all of it. And the driver was like, all right, cool. Here's $95, here's my coin changer, and here's my wallet. Dwight then jerked the driver's head around and said, quote, open your mouth, end quote. But Dwight messed with the wrong guy tonight. The driver got his hands on the gun and diverted the bullet just as Dwight pulled the trigger. Dwight bit the driver. Ouch! At this point, they both possessed the gun as they fought to gain superiority. And Dwight used all of his power to pull the driver into the back seat as they both struggled for their life. The driver gained the superior position, turned the barrel of the gun towards Dwight and pulled the trigger. But the stupid pistol didn't fire. Sh- Dwight said it only had blanks, but the driver didn't believe it. He kept struggling. The driver still with the gun, cocked the gun and pulled the trigger again. Nothing. The driver then sought this opportunity to open the door and attempt to leave, but Dwight didn't want to let go. He bit the driver on the head and on his back like a savage, but the driver gave Dwight a gut check with his elbow and got away on foot. Oh my. If you're sweating as much as I am, you just wait. As I was reading those facts in the court opinion while researching, I was freaking the heck out like, run baby, run! (sighs) Dwight ran to Nadia's house hid the gun behind the house, and then he went inside. And after it was all said and done, Dwight had robbed two convenience stores, killed two cab drivers, and attempted to kill a third. And he made off with less than $300, which today is equivalent to about $650-ish. So after all of this, Fort Hood had one dead soldier in a cab on base. Killeen had one dead cab driver, another cab driver that was almost killed, and two convenience store robberies. So the army criminal investigators and the local authorities, they're looking for a killer. But who knows if the authorities were actually connecting the taxi cab murders and the robberies because one doesn't necessarily equate to the other, you know? And I'm not sure why someone hasn't already written a book about this, but it's really unclear to me how this manhunt went down. But news reports indicate that Nadia turned Dwight in to the police. The authorities caught Dwight within a day or two of the murders. Once he was taken into custody and interrogated, Dwight sang like a canary. Not just once, twice. Once to the local authorities and once to the army investigators. His detailed confessions caught on video. The army took jurisdiction of the case and Dwight was charged with capital murder, attempted murder, and a ton of other offenses stemming from the robberies. Dwight tried to plead guilty. He's like, yeah, I did it. I'm pleading guilty. But his offer was rejected because the government, they weren't taking any mercy on this guy. They wanted the death penalty. And if you don't already know, you can't plead guilty if they're seeking the death penalty. Recently, I covered two unsolved cases, which I am sure caused you to pause and analyze your inner detective. Well, if you want to hone in on that inner detective, then you need to check out June's Journey. June's Journey is a mobile game that you can play anywhere while connected to Wi-Fi. June's Journey takes you through the main character, June's, adventure to uncover family secrets. Her first task is to uncover the mystery of her sister's death. You will be using your keen eye to spot hidden clues in the immersive scenes that take you across the globe. The scene is set in the 1920s, so it's like going back in time. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game, and I love playing while waiting for my kids at the bus stop. It allows me to clear my mind from the tasks of the day and to refocus on my mommy duties. What I love about June's Journey is that not only are you searching for objects, but you can join other players online in a detective club. 
And then you also get to design this luxurious island estate that is all yours. And if you have friends who play, you can gift each other trees, flowers, and other amazing decorative items. Today, I invite you to escape reality and immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Go ahead, download June's Journey today. Dwight's trial took place in March of 1989, and I am sure that you are all on the edge of your seat. Like, why did he do this? Is it possible it really was for gifts for Nadia? Well, when interrogated, both Nadia and Dwight said that they used the money to buy and consume cocaine. And listen, I was taken a little bit aback when I discovered that because he was on this violent 48-hour crime spree. When could he possibly have had the time to stop, breathe, buy cocaine, and then use it? Now, bear with me. I know that sounds a little bit ignorant, but he also had a job with the army. Was he on leave from work? I mean, his crimes were occurring when I look at that calendar. His crimes occurred from a Sunday to a Wednesday, from when the robberies occurred to when the murders occurred to when he got caught. So at some point, he must have been going to work unless he was on leave or maybe just AWOL. I don't know. So trial's taking place. And at trial, the defense tries to argue that Nadia, his Italian girlfriend, she was the mastermind. She was the mastermind behind everything that he did. And she encouraged him to commit these crimes. But it wasn't for Christmas gifts, as people were alleging earlier. It was to get money for her immigration paperwork. So a homegirl is an Italian immigrant. She's still married to some dude and she wants Dwight to get money so that she can apply for her immigration paperwork. I don't know. That's basically what they're saying, but I guess it's possible. That's what the defense argued. Well, she was called as a witness, but her testimony really didn't help Dwight. She denied knowing anything about the crime. She's like, "Mm -mm, I didn't know what he killed people. I didn't know that. She actually says that she didn't know about any of the crimes until after he had already committed them. And she says, I knew he had a gun, but I don't like guns and I didn't let him bring it in my house. But get this and tell me if you believe she knew nothing about the planning or the execution of the crimes. She actually admits to driving Dwight to the convenience stores. Well, she doesn't actually drive him to the actual convenience stores. She drives him nearby, stays in the car and waits while he goes in and then comes back out. But she basically says, hey, I didn't know what was happening. I was scooping him up and I thought nothing, nothing of it. I don't personally believe her. I think that that seems like a pretty crazy story to me. But anyway, on the night when Dwight attempted to kill the third taxi cab driver, Nadia asked Dwight. She, so she's basically saying, hey, I told him to get out of the cab. So it's not possible that I could have told him to get in the cab to attempt to kill this driver. Well, Nadia admits that Dwight confessed to killing people for money and actually showed her the money, but she thought he was bluffing. And to her credit, if she really should get any credit at all, she cooperated with the investigators, including letting them into her house where a substantial amount of physical evidence was found. The jury in this case deliberated for five hours and then found Dwight guilty. So then they moved on to the sentencing portion. During sentencing, the government sought the death penalty, so they presented various theories of murder plus, and these are aggravating factors that make a murder conviction worthy of a death penalty. As we are well aware, not every murder is a capital murder case, so there has to be something more egregious that causes anyone to consider the death penalty. And in this case, those factors included, quote, the premeditated murder of Charbino, which is the second cab driver, was committed during the course of a robbery, that Dwight acted, that's the first thing. The second thing is that Dwight acted as a trigger man in the felony murder of Faye, which is the first cab driver. And the third thing is that Dwight, having been found guilty of premeditated murder, had committed a second murder 
also proven at a single trial, end quote. So that is all very confusing. It just, it seems like a lot. The whole point is that the prosecution had to prove these things in order to get the death penalty. So the defense, in their defense, they submit mitigating evidence regarding Dwight's tough upbringing, as I had mentioned earlier, and it did seem pretty tough. But the jury really was unconvinced that a tough upbringing, regardless of how bad, could mitigate a murder spree like Dwight's. And they sentenced him to death. They said, "Eh, dude, sorry, you deserve the death penalty. The judge who presided over Dwight's court martial said, quote, I hope God has mercy on you for what you did to those three people, end quote. But Dwight thought there was sufficient error to overturn his death sentence. And because he received the death penalty, his case got an automatic appellate review. His first of many appeals was heard in 1992. And on appeal, Dwight argued a ton of things, but he focused primarily on Nadia's connection to the case. In fact, the defense thought that they should have been allowed to treat her like an accomplice while she testified. As defined by the Legal Information Institute, an accomplice, as my true crime army maybe knows, is a person who, quote, knowingly, voluntarily, or intentionally gives assistance to another in the commission of a crime, end quote. We all know from episode eight, Marines Killing Marines, that the presence at a crime scene is not relevant to guilt if you are in on the crime. So if you order hit, even if you're not there, you're still guilty. It's it's about the assistance given to realize the crime, you know? And you may be wondering, who cares what Nadia's connection to the crime was? Dwight was the trigger man. And while the defense, they were actually trying to shift the blame. They argued Nadia's connection to the case is important because it would dictate how the defense could treat her on the stand as she testified. In fact, if she was a hostile witness, the defense would have been able to ask her leading questions. A yes or no question where really the only answer you can give is yes or no. I mean, you can try and fit in an answer in there, but really the person is who's asking a leading question, they just want a yes or no answer. So for leading questions, you could argue that the defense would be in essence testifying for the witness and the witness would just be confirming the attorney's statements on the stand. Okay, so the defense would have more leeway with Nadia as a witness if she was a hostile witness. And so the questions might sound something like this. Ready? Nadia, you told Dwight to rob these convenience stores, right? You drove him to the convenience store? And you waited for him? When the first robbery didn't yield the type of money you wanted, you drove him to another convenience store. You get the picture. So those are the types of leading questions you would get. Even if Nadia said no to all of those questions asked, the seed would be planted in the minds of the jurors. But the trial judge didn't like this argument about the kind of accomplice or hostile witness. And he and the defense counsel got into a colorful discussion. And so I'm going to post that to my to my blog. No dice for Dwight, though, with that argument. The appeals court sided with the trial judge and found no error. Dwight's case would be heard by the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces next, and ultimately by the U.S. Supreme Court. I should note, it's surprising for the Supreme Court to grant Sir on a military case, but in this particular case, it was important that they did to decide a key issue. Does the president acting as commander-in-chief have the authority to execute a military prisoner in peacetime? And so the court opinion in Loving versus United States is thorough a.k.a. lengthy. Justice Kennedy delivered the opinion of the court. And if you're interested in all of the nitty gritty nerdy details, I'm going to post a link on my blog post. But here is a brief court martial history lesson in a nutshell. In 1916, Congress gave the military authority to try their own folks for felonies. 
So Congress said, military, you can try military people for felonies that they commit, except murder and rape committed in the U.S. during peacetime. So if someone commits murder or rape and the U.S. is not at war, the military does not have authority to court-martial them. In 1950, enter the Uniform Code of Military Justice, the UCMJ, basically the military's criminal code. And the UCMJ codified two reasons why the death penalty might be an option in a court-martial. One, premeditated murder, and two, felony murder. Okay, so we have the UC, the creation of the UCMJ. Case law soon followed requiring aggravated factors before a death penalty could be given. So in 1984, President Reagan said, please ratify at least one aggravating factor. If you're gonna take a life, we need to be crystal clear why. The loving murder spree was only four years later. And so this was still new territory. But the Supreme Court ultimately ruled in favor of the United States and Dwight's conviction and sentence were affirmed. Yes, the president does have the authority to execute a military prisoner for a felony murder during peacetime. That's a nutshell. It's very complicated, but in I was I was like 45 seconds or less. I was able to explain <laughs> explain what the Supreme Court said. Not really. OK, guys, please just go read the Supreme Court opinion. It's really fascinating if you're really into like law. I think it's a great read. But even after being heard before the highest court, Dwight got one more chance at the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces in 2006. But the court wasn't pleased, even calling him, quote, a one-man crime spree, end quote, and using his own words against him. Specifically, quote, he felt he had nothing to lose by continuing to do what he was doing and only stopped when he failed to murder a third cab driver, end quote. Well, I am sure that in 2006, the families of Dwight's victims finally were able to sleep a little bit better at night knowing the battle to keep the man that stole their loved one or almost stole their loved one was behind bars forever and would one day see the same fate, an untimely death. But not so fast. Dwight got the sympathy of a Cornell law professor and director of the Cornell Death Penalty Project, John H. Bloom. According to the Cornell Law School website, Mr. Bloom represented Dwight for 25 of the 30 years that Dwight served on death row. Mr. Bloom joined Cornell Law School in 1997, and he brought along Dwight's case. Since then, Cornell Law students have assisted in all facets of Dwight's case. Mr. Bloom and his law students petitioned for Dwight and prepared a package for presidential clemency. A link to this package can be found on my blog post, and the package was my primary source for Dwight's history before the Army. And Dwight's attorneys, they must have done a really great job presenting a case for clemency, because on January 17, 2017, three days before President Barack Obama left office, he commuted Dwight's death sentence to life without parole. So what does that even mean? A commutation is just a sentence reduction. That's basically what it is. True Crime Army, had you heard about Dwight Loving's commutation before today? Probably not. Why? Because media attention about Dwight's commutation went virtually quiet because there were over 200 pardons or commutations issued that day. But really, the reason why you didn't hear about Dwight's commutation was because it was issued on the same day that President Obama commuted Chelsea Manning's sentence. For those of you who don't know, 
Chelsea was the Army Intel analyst convicted of a 2010 Intel leak after she leaked nearly 750,000 classified or sensitive documents to WikiLeaks. And just like that, a decades-long battle by the victims' families was wiped away. The president never gave a reason for commuting Dwight's sentence, and really, he's not required to do so. But according to the Cornell Law website, Dwight's attorney, Mr. Bloom, suspects that the race effects in Loving's sentence was the deciding factor. Bloom later added, quote, Loving's successful petition for clemency constitutes the first presidential commutation of a death sentence in more than 50 years. Quote, this is a historic event that we were happy to be a part of, end quote. Faye's family spoke to Livezet after the commutation, and it seems they were and still are confused why the president chose Dwight's case for commutation. Faye's brother told Lizette, quote, Loving gets to live. My brother doesn't. I struggle with whom to be more angry. I looked at most of the cases commuted, and Loving's was the only murder case that I noted. Most others were drug cases. I wonder why Obama chose to commute this one. This decision by Obama has made an already impossible task for me even more difficult, end quote. Faye's mother has chosen to forgive Loving. In fact, she said, quote, After 22 years of struggling, the Lord put on my heart to send a letter of forgiveness. After wanting to grow in my own personal relationship with Jesus, I knew this was something I had to do. I wanted so strongly to be obedient to God. After I put my letter in the mail, it was like a 50-pound rock was lifted from my shoulders. I still have days that it seems like it was just yesterday. The first five years were the hardest. I couldn't let go of the fact that Chris died alone in that cab, but after growing my relationship with Jesus and reading my Bible, I discovered that Chris was indeed not alone when he died. Jesus was right there with him. The hurting never ends, but over time, it does soften. Death of a loved one is always difficult, but when parents lose a child, the feeling is like the crushing of your heart and soul. The grief just seems endless. Passing of time does soften the pain, but it never goes away completely. God has been my refuge and my rock. He has put in my heart to share my story. All I know is that if my story can reach one heart who hasn't received Jesus as their Lord and Savior, it was well worth sharing and another work from the loss of Chris. End quote. True Crime Army, that case really sucked. These, all, all these cases suck. It wasn't told to be political or religious. It's just the facts. It's the facts of the case. I don't minimize anything that Dwight did because he was a monster. But man, from the moment that he was in his mother's womb, he was unwanted and he was born to a horrible situation. But you know what? He had siblings who turned out perfectly fine. But the victims, my heart goes out to their families who deal with the murder of their loved one every single day, only to find out that their son's killer was granted mercy. What do you guys think? Let me know on social. You know where to find me. True Crime Army, thanks for sticking with me. Another depressing story that needs to be told. And that's why I am here telling them every single week. This episode was created and produced by me, Margot and researched and written in collaboration with one of my listeners, Uda Loop. All of the music was created by Tyops. To find a list of all the sources that I pieced together to bring you the story, I encourage you all to go to militarymurderpodcast.com to check out the links. 
Until next time, remember, you never really know what someone is capable of, whether you're on a military installation or a local convenience store. So remain vigilant always. You have a fabulous week and I'll keep digging to bring you another military murder story next week. Shh, let's work another podcast.